Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. O Christ God, when you raise Lazarus from the dead before your resurrection, you proclaim the resurrection of all. And so we too, like the children, carry the symbols of victory, and we cry out to thee, O vanquisher of death, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Um, thank you all for coming out this evening. I know that our Lenten journey as, as at the Institute of Catholic Culture has been tough. And I know it's been tough because you've taken it seriously. And, uh, but we're drawing close to the third day resurrection of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we have a few days left to struggle on together. So I, I just want to say thank you for coming out this evening as you always do to the Institute. It means so much to me. With that said, we have a long journey ahead of us. We're going to take a little bit different format this evening in order to give me just a little bit more time. What are we going to be doing tonight? I would, I'm going to be walking with you through the city of Jerusalem with Christ to give you a sense of the geography, the lay of the land, where the Valley of Kidron is in comparison to Mount Sion in the upper room, where the upper room is in, in a comparison to the Praetorium. It's so fundamentally important for you as you're hearing the Gospel text. These texts are meant to kind of, in your mind, these words are meant to turn into pictures easily, but for us, sadly, we don't have any pictures in our mind to put to the words. And so we hear the text and we want to be able to draw out of them uh, great benefit for our spiritual life. But in the end, they end up being simply words. What is the praetorium? What does it look like? Where, did, where was it in Jerusalem? Why was he taken there? And so forth. So we'll have a chance to look through the city of Jerusalem for the most part as it stands today and have a chance to look back to what it may have been like for Christ to a certain extent. Obviously, we can't make up everything, so we're going to be looking oftentimes at the modern city of Jerusalem and trying to get a sense of where, we, where, where Christ was going and what He was looking at and attempting to put away some of the modern buildings that we see, if you will. Okay, But we have a lot to get through, and so we're going to take a, a different uh, approach tonight. We're going to do a short session in the beginning, 40 minutes. We're going to take a short break, and then do the last section, which is probably about 40 minutes. So a little bit longer evening, but with a break in the middle. How does that sound? Okay, because there's so much to go through with you that I don't want to, um, I don't want to miss anything. I've got about 125 slides for you, which is probably... Uh, image overkill, but in an age in which we just are inundated with image, I thought I would throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. Okay, so we'll begin here with the map of the Mediterranean world, and as you see there, the Sea Internum, meaning Institute of Catholic Culture Friends. What's that, Henry? The, the, the sea in the, in, the, in the middle, right? The sea in the middle 
of all of this land which was the known world at the time, or of the Roman Empire. And so, we look at the Mediterranean world as we say it. The world which is in the middle of the earth. Mediterranean. In the middle of the earth. And there, in this Mediterranean world, we have what is for us and what was for the ancient people, the Jews, the most important city, the city of Jerusalem. It was certainly an important trade city. Maybe not as important as Alexandria and other cities of the East, but it was in many ways a gateway from the East to the West. And so it certainly had a political significance to it. This is why it was conquered over and over and over again by different political powers. It was an important piece of the puzzle to hold. But more importantly than that, we're going to be talking on a number of layers tonight. Certainly many people looking toward uh, Easter in a few days see the work of our Savior and the confrontation which He engages in in Jerusalem simply on this level, a political level. A level in which He upset the political powers of His day and He paid the price. But as we know, Christ went to Jerusalem for a more important reason. He confronted not only the political powers of His day, but He confronted the power of death itself. And He went to Jerusalem particularly to confront that power. And there's a reason why He went to Jerusalem to confront the power of death. It was the city which was chosen by God. It was the city in which He desired to dwell among His people. It was for the people of God the center of creation. And I, I always, we will not get this question during Q&A, if we even have time for Q&A. Um, and that's, well, it can't be the center of creation because we know that must have been somewhere else as the, as the archaeologists and, and geologists tell us that the, the beginning of, of the world was in a different location. Look, the most important thing I want you to walk away from tonight, with tonight, is the understanding that the Jews saw Jerusalem as the center of the world because God dwelled there. He care less about geography and archaeology because it was there that God spoke with His people. It was the crossroads of the revelation of God on earth. There are two slides I want to show you that very much beautifully depict this understanding. Here, there's many slides you're not going to be able to read. I'm going to have to tell you what they say. But the city of Jerusalem is depicted in the center. Asia here, Africa and Europe. Jerusalem, the center of the flower. I said for the Jews it was the center of the world. And they certainly believed it to be so. In fact, by one tradition, it was believed to be the original location of the Garden of Eden itself. The original location of the Garden of Eden. Which puts us in a much broader context than the simple political battle 
which Christ enters into. And we need to see Christ approach Jerusalem in this context. It is within this context, the context of salvation, that we will watch Christ walk into Jerusalem and confront the powers of darkness. St. Peter Chrysologus says, St. Paul tells us that the human race takes its origin from two men, Adam and Christ. The first man, Adam, he says, became a living soul. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was made by the last Adam, from whom he also received his soul. The second Adam stamped his image on the first Adam when he created him. That is why he took on himself the role and the name of the first Adam, in order that he might not lose what he had made in his own image. Christ goes to Jerusalem, the center of the world, the crossroads of the revelation of God, the location of the Garden of Paradise, where Adam and Eve had turned their eye away from their Savior and had received instead of life only death. Christ went to Jerusalem to reclaim His image and likeness. We see this also in this work of art, Jerusalem, depicted in the very center of creation. In fact, with the moon and the sun in the creation of the entire universe. Jerusalem is the center of the world. It is the city of God. It is the city of the great drama of salvation. In fact, it is the city in which the greatest drama of salvation has ever taken place. The drama of the creation, the fall, and the restoration of God's image and likeness on earth. It is not only the city in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but as I said earlier, it is by tradition the original location of the Garden of Eden. And in the center of Jerusalem stands the Temple Mount. Today, the city is a very beautiful and moving picture. You'll see the Temple Mount is here. The Kidron Valley runs just below it on the eastern side. And today stands on that Temple Mount where the Temple of God once stood a building called the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock. What rock? What rock? Ah, this is a very interesting. The Rock of Peter. We can get back to that later, okay? We can get back to that later. I want to share with you, I want to share with you a quotation. Originally, this rock was called by the Jews the Rock of Moriah, or the Foundation Stone. It is the rock which comes forth in that central most place in the city of Jerusalem, that place known originally as Paradise. A pre-Christian Jewish midrash says it is upon this rock 
that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. And it is upon this rock that Solomon built his temple. It is from this rock that prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock which is the capstone of the gates of Hades. What did the Holy One, blessed be He, do? Like a man setting in place the central pole of a tent, he raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called the spindle stone. And it is the very navel of the earth from which the whole earth is stretched out. And upon this stone is the house of the Lord. I'll share with you a, a quotation um, from a priest. I picked this up many years ago, and it's a bit lengthy, but I do believe it's well worth our attention. The priest's name is Father Angelo Geiger. And he says, In the beginning, God planted a garden of paradise. The divine gardener arranged his paradise in good order with his own hands. He planted a hedgerow around it, and without tilling its virgin earth, or digging furrows, he planted vineyards, fruit trees, the green herbs, and all kinds of vegetations to delight the eye. He channeled a river into his garden that it might always have living water and provided that the garden would always have enough sun and fair weather. Then, in the middle of the garden, he planted the tree of life. Everything was organized around the tree of life, and the tree of life was the source of life. There he introduced the beasts of the earth, water and sky. And when the gardener saw that all of this was good, he knew that it was a fitting home for the one whom he had made very good. And so the Lord God put man into the garden, but this only on the condition that he would dress and keep the garden. The divine gardener walked with man in the garden and taught him to tend it well. But man, the first family dressed and kept the garden badly. Man and woman reaped where they did not sow, and they sowed the seeds of death. And so the Lord God cast them from their home and placed a cherubim with a flaming sword before the garden of paradise to keep the way to the tree of life, lest perhaps they should put forth their hand and eat of its fruit and live forever. For a long time, man left was left to plant and tend his own garden, to toil greatly by the sweat of his brow, only to reap thistles. All that was left for him was to eat, where the, eat the wild herbs of the earth. And when he planted vineyards, he would reap only wild grapes. Often his vines withered, and the walls which he built around the garden and the vineyards were broken down. And his crops trampled by wild beasts. Sometimes even God withheld rain, but for this man had only himself to blame, for he did not plant and tend his garden the way God had taught him. He did not remember what the garden of paradise looked like, and he did not have access to the tree of life. But he did remember the promise that God had made from of old, that someday God would plant a new garden in which access to the tree of life would be open and where the garden would be tended by the divine gardener himself. And it is here, in this context, in the context of the Garden of Eden, of paradise as the Jews saw it in Christ's day, that we begin 
our way of Christ's cross. I want to contextualize, and I will do this over and over again with you. Some of you are here from our trip to the Holy Land yet last year, right? Raise your hand. You went, okay, we did this a lot together, so you're going to know this already. I want to make sure that you understand the geographical context of the city so that you can understand why Christ went where He did when He did. The first contextual map I want you to see is that of the Holy Land itself. The Sea of Galilee is up here in the north. Capernaum, where Christ spent most of His time preaching and teaching and working miracles. Nazareth is also up here in the north. The Jordan River, the headwaters up here in Caesarea Philippi, flow into the Sea of Galilee and flow down the Jordan River and eventually into the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is right here. Right near the Dead Sea right near the Jordan River, right near the city of Jericho where Joshua had led the Israelites across the Jordan River to conquer the city and to take the land. Jerusalem is always spoken of as up. We go up to Jerusalem. No matter where you are, you always ascend to Jerusalem and there you meet the Lord. This map is very difficult for you to understand until I start to point it out to you. So be patient with yourselves, and I'm going to walk you through it. Fran, if you need to move that way, it's okay. I'll try not to get in front of you guys too much. This is the city of Jerusalem today. This is the Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount, what building? The Dome of the Rock. This is the Kidron Valley, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley runs in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. When Christ went down the Mount of Olives, He went into the Kidron Valley and then up to the Temple Mount. The Kidron Valley runs here and the Valley of Hinnon or the Valley of Gehenna. The Valley of Gehenna was the place where they threw all their trash. It stunk. It was terrible. The Valley of Gehenna meets the Valley of Kidron and eventually flows here south out to the Jordan River. Mount Sion. We heard today probably in the church, Daughter Sion. You've heard that many times in the church. Okay, Sion is one of the hills around Jerusalem. In fact, it's one of the hills of Jerusalem. Mount Sion. It's here that during the, during the Babylonian exile, the poor refugees that were not taken into exile camped out. They were the faithful ones at the time of the Babylonian exile. And there on Mount Sion, there was a community at the time of Christ that was associated with the Essene community. Christ also loved this area, probably because of His connection with the Essenes. It's there on Mount Sion where we will find the upper room. It's there on Mount Sion also where we will find Caiaphas' house. A little closer view of Jerusalem as it would have been at the time of Christ. This valley here on the east side of Jerusalem again is called the Kidron Valley, which means this hill is the Mount of 
olives, exactly. Dropping into the Kidron Valley then, you come out and up the valley of Gehenna. Here is Mount Sion. Good, you guys are getting it nicely. Okay, why is this so, so important? Where did Jesus go? Where is the Mount of Olives? How far away is it? How long did it take Him to get there? Where is the upper room? As we're going to hear today in one of the texts we're going to look at, when He says, go into the city and reserve the room for Passover. The city is the city of Jerusalem. They went to the upper city, Mount Sion, where He had close friends. But He was certainly outside of the city when He said that. We're going to look at where He was. This is our goal for tonight. Another view which is very beautiful now from the Mount of Olives, looking from the east, looking over Jerusalem, you'll notice the Temple Mount, but you'll notice it is not the highest point in the city. There is a higher point than the Temple Mount. The highest point in the city of Jerusalem is Mount Sion. And again, the place of the upper room. This church here is Dormition Abbey, where the Mother of God reposed in the Lord before the Assumption. As I said, it's on that mountain where the upper room is and also Caiaphas' house. Looking, looking more northwest, again, from the Mount of Olives, okay, from the Mount of Olives, looking to the west, but to the north this time, whereas Mount Sion is more to the south, we see these two blue domes. Can you see those? A little bit? Okay. That's the Church of the Resurrection. That's where Golgotha is. That's where Calvary is. That's the place where Christ rose from the dead. And you say to me, I thought He, I thought he was crucified outside of the city. Yes, in His days, that was outside of the city walls. Today, it is certainly within the city. It's in the Christian quarter of Jerusalem. But in those days, it was outside the city walls. Looking from the east, okay, looking from Mount Sion now, toward the city and eventually toward, what mount is this? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. This valley that runs here is called the Kidron Valley. Very good. Okay? It's just over the Mount of Olives where Bethany is located. Bethany was the place where Jesus called Lazarus forth from the tomb. Okay? And also, Bethphagi. Okay? Right up here where Jesus went from Bethany around the Mount of Olives and descended, and descended into the Kidron Valley and eventually to the Temple Mount. Again, a view of the Mount of Olives. I'm going to turn now to another view also of the Mount of Olives, but from what is known today as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. Okay? The western wall is on the western side of the Temple Mount. This actually has, was not a wall of the Temple at all. It was, a, it was a, uh, a footer, a foundation piece for part of the palace that was in place next to the Temple. Okay? Regardless, you're looking toward the east and eventually toward the Mount of Olives and the town of Bethany, which is where I want to begin our, our story today. Well, that wasn't supposed to do it like that, but there it is. Okay. 
Anyways, again, I showed you this map before, and behind this is the Dome of the Rock. But here's a little bit of a model of what the temple would have looked like, Herod's temple would have looked like at the time of Christ. One of the authors I was reading describes it as this. You can watch as I'm describing it. The whole structure was a fantastic tour de force. It must have presented a most startling appearance, more like a modern skyscraper than any known building of antiquity. No expense was spared by Herod in the materials of the structure or in the decoration. It was built after the manner of, Syri- of many Syrian temples. It had huge blocks. Josephus d- gives a typical dimension of a single block, 45 by 6 by 5 cubits. The, t- the, st- the stone employed with a brilliant white marble. Josephus compares the general aspect of the building seen at a distance to a mountain covered with snow. The east, fr- the east front of the holy place, which is what you're looking at, okay? the east front of the holy place was plated with gold which reflected the rays of the rising sun with dazzling splendor. The great folding doors of the holy place were likewise plated with gold and across them was drawn a magnificent embroidered veil whose four colors typified the four elements. Over the doorway hung a giant golden vine replacing that which Aristobulus had given to Pompey whose clusters were as large as a man. It was this place, in fact, in many ways, this view that Christ would have seen. It was this city which He chose to come. It was this place where the son of David had built the temple. And it was to this place that the new son of David, the new Solomon, would build his temple on earth. To begin our walk with Christ in the way of the cross, I want to, for a moment, step back. Because I said that Bethany is just over this hill here. Turn with me to John chapter 11 if you brought your Bibles with you. John chapter 11. You know the story of the raising of Lazarus, but I want to, again, contextualize this geographically. Take a look at chapter 11, verse 1 in the Gospel of John. If you're watching online, go get your Bible. (laughs) Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Okay, You know the story of Lazarus, and we don't have to read through the whole thing, but look again at chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came again to Bethany. Okay? This is the city today of Bethany. To the left here, the Franciscan church. Okay? And here in the middle is the Orthodox church, which is built right next to and over the tomb of St. Lazarus. Uh, You can visit it today. Here are some pictures of the tomb of Lazarus. To get down into the tomb of Lazarus, you have to go down many steps into a very dark and cold place. In fact, the tomb is not right here. This is just the beginning of the steps down. 
as you come down these steps, you then turn and go through this very small hole and go down into a place where maybe three or four people can stand together. Notice, let's see, notice the hill country of Judah is just outside of Jerusalem. And it's there that Christ goes to begin the story of His own passion. I want to read to you a quotation, maybe longer than I, than I would want to, but it's, it's well worth the read, from the great Alexander Schmemann, who says that Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, personifies the whole mankind and also each man. And Bethany is the home of Lazarus, the man, is a symbol of the whole world as home of man. For each man was created as a friend of God and called to divine friendship. The knowledge of God, the communion with Him, sharing of life within, with Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And yet this friend whom God loves, whom in love He has created, called to life, He is destroyed and annihilated by a power which God did not create, the power of death. God encounters in His own world a power which destroys His work and annihilates His design. The world is but lamentation and sorrow, tears and death. How is this possible? How did this happen? These are the questions implied by John's slow and detailed narrative of Jesus' coming to the grave of His friend. And once there, Jesus wept. Why does He weep? if he knows that in a moment he will call Lazarus back to life. Jesus weeps because he contemplates the triumph of death and the destruction in the world created by God. It stinks, say the Jews, trying to prevent Jesus from approaching the corpse. And this awful warning applies to the whole world and to all life. God is life and the giver of life. He called man into the divine reality of life. And behold, it stinks. The world was created to reflect and proclaim the glory of God. And it stinks. At the grave of Lazarus, God encounters death. The reality of anti-life, of destruction and despair. He meets His enemy who has taken away from Him His world and become its prince. And we who follow Jesus as He approaches the grave, we enter with Him into that hour of His, which He announced so often as the climax and the fulfillment of His whole work. The cross, its necessity and universal meaning are announced in the shortest verse of the Gospel. And Jesus wept. We understand now that it is because He wept, i.e. that He loved His friend Lazarus, that Jesus that Jesus had the power of calling Him back to life. The power of resurrection is not a divine power in itself, but the power of love, or rather love as power. God is love and love is life. Love creates life and it is love that weeps at the grave and it is love that restores life. This is the meaning of the divine tears of Jesus. In them, love is at work again, recreating, redeeming, restoring the darkened life of man. Lazarus, come out. St. Peter Chrysologus tells us 
that when Christ cried out, Lazarus, come out, He began to strike the doors of the underworld, to break through the gates of Hades, to open the entrance to death, to dissolve the old law of Gehenna, to do away with the age-old right to punish, and to demand the return of Lazarus' soul. The power of Hades, with all its fury, confronted him. And as the devil began to realize his impotence in the face of our Savior, he went after whatever he could. Turn with me to John chapter 12, verse 9. As Jesus approaches his Passover, the powers in place at the time, the Jewish authorities, become absolutely infuriated in the face of God's gift of His life. And when they see Lazarus raised from the dead, it is like the straw that broke the camel's back. Chapter 12, verse 9, when the great crowd of the Jews learned that He was there, they came, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death. They planned to kill the man whom Jesus had just brought back to life. It is this great contest, the contest between life and death, that Jesus will confront in Jerusalem. Not one of the political powers of this world, but the political powers of the underworld. I told you that Bethany is simply just over, just over that Mount of Olives in that ridge. Jesus would have made His his way here from Bethany and down that Mount of Olives in those last few days to spend preaching in the temple and also spending many, many hours here back in Bethany at night and here in the Mount of Olives. It is at this point when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead that there is absolutely no turning back. He will go to His death to save us. Again, the geography and the lay of the land and Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Notice in John chapter 12 that you have open there, John chapter 12, verse 12, the next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. My dear friends, get out of your minds that a small group of faithful people came to Jesus waving little tiny palms that they had trimmed with scissors. Not at all. Josephus writing about, uh, about 40 years after this says that as many as 2.7 million people came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. The Jews inundated this small town of Jerusalem, this small city of Jerusalem. They would have been camped on every rooftop, in every valley. They would have been encamped across the Mount of Olives. And they heard that Jesus, who had just raised Lazarus from the dead, was coming. And they went out to meet Him. It was swarming with people 
and they had one question on their mind. Could this possibly be the Messiah? Could this possibly be the son of David? Could this possibly be the new Solomon? John tells us that the entire world, the Jews step back from this scene and they say, look, the entire world has gone after him. We can do nothing. Who is the son of David? Who is the son of David? It is Solomon. I want to step back for a moment to give you a context of what Jesus sees as He comes to this city and looks over the place where He will die and rise on the third day. Turn your Bibles back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. If you didn't bring your Bibles tonight, my friends, I give you a pass because it's Palm Sunday. 1 Kings chapter 1. She's asking what verse, and I have to decide. Verse 32. The story contextualized. David is getting old. In fact, you can see that in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. Look at verse 32. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servant of your Lord and cause Solomon my son, the son of David, cause him to ride upon my own mule down to the spring of Gihon and there anoint him as king over my people. Make him to ride upon my own ass. So Jesus, leaving Bethany, knowing what is before Him, came, I believe, to very much this point, looking through the trees to the city of David. And He stopped with great crowds around Him asking one question, could this possibly be the son of David? Could this possibly be the new Solomon? And he stopped and he said, go and get me the ass to ride upon. He mounted that ass and the people went absolutely crazy. Ripping down branches, they waved them in the air, shouting over and over again, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! Because there was one man, one man, who had ever ridden into Jerusalem to be anointed king, and that was the Son of David. Jesus looked at the Jews and the power that He was going to confront and he knew it was time. The pilgrims that came to the Jerusalem with only the clothes on their back started ripping off their clothes and throwing them on the ground in front of them, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. To say, Hosanna to the Son of David, that He is our King, is treason. And they did it publicly in front of the Romans and in front of the Jews who were in power at the time. Don't get the scene that is, is a nice fairy tale taking place. Christ confronted the powers of Jerusalem that day. 
This, I believe, gives a good representation of what Christ would have seen as He made His way down the Mount of Olives. The common way down the Olives today is a little bit south of this, but I don't believe He would have gone south. I think He would have gone more towards the north. Down this section, which is still very beautiful to this day, and certainly today even there are olive trees growing on the hillsides of Jerusalem in this area. Again, this view of the Mount of Olives where Christ would have spent the majority of the time He had remaining a few days with His closest friends. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This scene that you see... Oh, that's the wrong slide that you see overlooking the city of Jerusalem is another view over the city from the Mount of Olives up high. A big portion of the Mount of Olives is covered in tombs. And there's a reason why all of the tombs are on the east hill of Jerusalem. It is because at the time of the Babylonian exile, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that the glory of God lifted up from the temple and departed the temple, went through the Kidron Valley, and mounted upon the the Mount of Olives on the ridge, and there ascended into heaven. The prophet tells us that the glory of God will return in the way it had come. And so the people of the time placed their tombs on that eastern side of Jerusalem so that they would be the first ones to behold the return of the glory of God. And it is down this mountain that the one who John the Evangelist tells us is the revelation of the glory of God on earth descended into the Kidron Valley overlooking these tombs. While Christ was spending His time on this Mount of Olives, He began to preach more and more vehemently against those who would eventually crucify Him. You can see that the, that the view looks almost like a, a city with a sea of tombs around it. A sea of whitewashed tombs. Take a look with me at Matthew chapter 24. I'm sorry, chapter 23. I believe it must have been from this vantage point in those last few days as He approached Jerusalem and taught in the temple and then left the temple to retire with His closest friends to the Mount of Olives that we read in chapter 23, then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by men, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you traverse sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes. You get a sense of why they crucified Him. (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Turn with me to chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and took counsel together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there should be a tumult among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, so you see, in these last few days, our Lord is spending his time on the Temple Mount preaching. He's retiring to the Mount of Olives with his friend, probably in the afternoon under the trees. And at nighttime, he's returning to the house of his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha to sleep, coming back and forth each day. A very close walk, just over the hill. Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And He said, Go into the city to such a one and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. So what is going on, my friends? He was just in Bethany. And he's, this is his view from Bethany coming over the hill. This is what he would have seen. His friends turn to him and say, where would you like to celebrate the feast? And he says, go into the city and there you will find the room. Okay, we're going to take our break. When we come back, we're going to walk with Jesus down the mountain to the upper room, from the upper room back to the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives to Caiaphas' house and eventually to the Praetorium and Golgotha. 
Okay, we're going to take about a two-minute break. Stand up, stretch your legs, and have something refreshments over there. Okay, well, those last people are standing up, getting their things. I'm going to get started because um, I have to. All right? So I want you to get the lay of the land, right? The Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley, up onto the Temple Mount, and then ultimately up to Mount Sion, where the upper room is located, which is where we're heading now. Okay? Um, and here you have the Kidron Valley, right, and the, and the city. We're going to make our way now up to the upper room. You would have come down the Mount of Olives and up here, and you can see here the upper room is marked, okay? A beautiful picture of Mount Sion from the Valley of Gehenna, so from the other side. And you get a sense from this picture that it really is a mount... There is a mountain within, within the range of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, Mount Sion. And again, that is, by the way, Dormition Abbey, right up there. Okay? I love this map because it gives you a sense of, here's the, here's the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley, the Temple Mount area, and then above that, Mount Sion and the, and the Valley of Gehenna. See, I'm going through a lot of slides all really fast now. Okay. Um, that's the same thing. You can see the Mount of Olives, okay, to Bethany and Jericho, so over the Mount of Olives and in, in that way. Okay. Okay, and here is what is now today the building that is on the traditional location of the upper room. I show it to you, not, unfortunately, um, it's, uh, it's not controlled by the Christians, and so it has very little in it to say anything about as a building. But it does have one very interesting thing, and that is a little statue that was placed there during the visit of John Paul II, uh, an attempt at a rendition of the Tree of Life. And I point it out to you because we have to always be pushing ourselves back into that broader context. We're not talking about confronting the political authorities of the day. We're talking about confronting death itself. Christ has come not to restore the, the kingdom of David only. He has come to restore the kingdom of God. He has come to restore Adam and Eve. He has come to restore us to paradise. And that means giving us back access to the tree of life. This is what the mystical supper, the last supper is all about. Giving us His life that we might eat of it and live forever like Adam and Eve before the fall. Christ made His way from that upper room. And I'll, I'll just say one thing about Him as He's there. I'll go back there for a second. As He's up there in the upper room, if you turn with me to John chapter 13, I'll just bring up what I pointed out to you a few weeks ago at Dr. O'Donnell's talk in chapter 13, verse 18. John 13, 18. I am not speaking of you all. This is our Lord's words during the mystical supper. I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is the scripture, it is the scripture that may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Who is it that has lifted his heel? Judas. And this is a quotation 
a quotation from Psalm 41. And if you flip back, if you want to, you don't have to flip with me, but to Psalm 41, context, context, context. As you're hearing in the church over the next few days, those quotations, as the Lord says something, it is meant, He's, he's putting it out there because, look, the Jews memorized the Psalms. They memorized the Scriptures. They, but they especially memorized the Psalms. And oftentimes in the Gospels we hear one line, but that one line is to be interpreted in the entire context of the Psalm in which it is written. And oftentimes we misunderstand what Christ is saying when we don't read it in its proper context. And this is a classic example of that. He says, He who has lifted his heel against me as though that one is going to destroy him or hurt him somehow. But in Psalm 41, listen, I'm just going to skip through a few verses. Blessed is he who who considers the poor. The Lord delivers him in the day of trouble. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. Thou dost not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, thou healest all his infirmities. Look down with me. Verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. Right? What did Judas do? He snuck out to betray the Lord in the darkness of night. All who hate me whisper against me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing has fastened upon him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my closest friend in whom I have trusted, who ate of my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. But do thou, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Context, context, context. Bring your Bibles to church this week. You hear these texts, you go back and read them in their proper context. Okay. Now, Christ makes His way from the upper room back to the Garden of Gethsemane in the darkness of night. He makes His way here to the Mount of Olives. As I showed you this before, from the upper room, probably dropping down somewhere here in the city of David, the old city. He probably would not have come up to Mount Moriah where the temple is because it's just very difficult to get around this, the, 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 the massive platform upon which the temple sat. He probably would have come down here into the city of David and eventually into the Kidron Valley okay, and made his way up along this valley here. Here's a picture of it. You can see the olive trees growing. And you can see, how was it that he would have walked without paths, without concrete and, 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 and clear ways? How would he have walked up in the darkness of night? You know that Passover is always on the full moon. The moon would have been shining to light his way and the apostles' way up into the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane. Here you see some of those olive trees that are still in existence today that date back probably even to the time of Christ. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. And you see those trees still that are planted there. The church there, which is, which is the church called the Church of All Nations, is built is actually quite beautiful. As we remember from David Clayton's talk at the Institute that the archi- this style of architecture is meant to to be a tree. And in fact, if the picture was clear, you would see branches here. Okay? And the stars 
in the dome, depicting that garden in which Christ entered. And then in the middle of that church is the stone upon which it is believed that Christ knelt down and wept and sweated blood. The priests there at the church oftentimes throw red rose petals to signify the blood which dropped from the face of Christ upon this stone. And the faithful come there to, uh, to pray and to kiss the stone. I have a quotation for you from Father James Groning that I think will contextualize this very beautifully. He says that for the beginning of His passion, Christ chose a wonderfully beautiful garden. How significant this choice was. In a garden, the first Adam had committed the first sin, the sin of disobedience. Therefore, it was in a garden that the second Adam should say to his father, not what I will, but what thou wilt. In a garden, Adam, by an abuse of liberty, had plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. In a garden, therefore, by the bonds of Christ, our fetters were to be broken. In a garden, God had pronounced the death penalty upon Adam. Hence, in a garden, Christ would take upon Him Himself the judgment of this curse. In a garden, the human race was lost. And usually, an object is sought where it is lost. Again, the Romans then led by the Jews, come to this, to this garden of Gethsemane. And the Scriptures tell us that an entire cohort of soldiers approached Christ. A cohort is 600 soldiers. Okay? This city was inundated with people for Passover. And soldiers came marching through that city to arrest Christ. There they arrested Him. And I believe He was taken then from Gethsemane probably not back the way He would have come from the upper room, but probably to the fortress of Antonia where the soldiers would have left them because we know that Christ was then taken to the house of Annas or, and also to the house of Caiaphas. The Scriptures tell us that He is first taken to Annas who was originally high priest. And then from Annas' house He is taken to Caiaphas's house. I think I thought I had the scriptural text for you to see. I'd written it down, but alas. Aha, there it is. See that? Prepared. John 18. Take a look at John 18 with me. John 18, verse 12. John 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers, the band there literally is cohort. Uh, and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound Him. And first they led Him to Annas, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Okay, So He's taken to Annas' house and then to Caiaphas' house. Why? I looked this up for you and a really great insight by a biblical scholar, D.A. Carson, says this. He says, Formally, the ensuing verses are confusing. Jesus is brought before Annas, who is distinguished from Caiaphas, the high priest. The high priest? Annas or Caiaphas? Which one? 
The problem is largely resolved once the complexities surrounding the high priesthood in the first century are recognized. Annas held the office from A.D. 6 until A.D. 15 when Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor, deposed him. Annas continued to hold enormous influence not only because many of the Jews resented the arbitrary deposition and appointment of high priests by a foreign power, but also because no fewer than five of Annas' sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas held the office at one time or another. Annas was thus the patriarch of of a high priestly family, and doubtless many still considered him the real high priest, even though Caiaphas was the high priest by Roman lights. So it is not surprising that Jesus should have been taken first to Annas. Probably the matter was decided in advance, and Annas was to some extent the power behind Caiaphas. Thus the high priest who questioned Jesus in verse 19 is Annas, and Caiaphas does not take his turn until verse 24. Okay? So it gives us some context of what is taking place there. Christ is then taken then from the from the Gethsemane. This map shows him coming back to the city of David, but I, I certainly believe that with six hundred soldiers they would have not walked all the way up to Mount Sion for one man. Okay? Probably they took him to the fortress of Antonia and said, Do with him what you will. And the Jews then took him up here to the upper city, to Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas' house, the location of Caiaphas' house is still known today. And you can see stairs. The first time I went to Jerusalem, you could actually still climb up these stairs. I wish I had taken one of those rocks with me and taken it home. But I didn't, and now you can't walk up them anymore. But anyways, these are the original stone steps that Christ would have walked up. Okay, Again, walking up Mount Sion. Okay? And there today stands the the church of St. Peter in Galacantu, St. Peter of the cock crowing. Okay? And there underneath this church, indeed, is a stone, what appears to be a stone prison. Okay? Down deep underneath the, the, the church are these places of holding. Okay? And as you come up into the church, in the center of the church, there is a hole in the stone floor, a hole that drops down into what looks like a cistern, a round holding cell. Okay? And that round holding cell is carved, as you can see, they put a little marker there, with Byzantine crosses marking this location. This location as a special location for the Christians. And yes, this is the traditional location of the prison of Christ while He suffered overnight in the house of Caiaphas. You can see that now, that hole which you saw from in, looking down, you can now see from above. Okay, It is a deep and dark hole. You can put in your notes, and we'll just skip for the, for the sake of time, Psalm 88, which is traditionally read in this place, that I have been placed into the darkest and deepest pit. It is here that Christ spent the night in Caiaphas' house at the beginning of His Passion. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, Verse 1. 
when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate the governor. At the time, the Jews could not put anyone to death. They were not allowed to do so. Okay, And so they could not kill Christ there. They had to take Him from the house of Caiaphas the high priest and take Him to the Roman authorities and accuse Him before the Roman authorities. So it is here. Notice what it says. In the morning, or when the morning came, He spent the entire night in the darkness of that deep pit. And certainly, He would have been praying the Psalms. You can take a look at Psalm 88. There is in that um, in that holding cell, a wall, and you can't really see. I, I had a better slide there, but it's not there. Anyways, it's hard to see. But there is one particular wall of that cell which is stained with sweat and oil and blood. Okay, where the holding cell of the prisoners would have been, and certainly Christ would have been there suffering for us. Christ was then taken from the house of Caiaphas here in Mount Sion and taken to Pontius Pilate in the Praetorium. The Praetorium is, is within the Antonia Fortress, right there, alongside the side of the temple. Okay, and you see there the, the, the artist making Christ's way to the Praetorium and eventually to also... He is sent from the praetorium. If you remember in Luke chapter 23, Pilate discovers that Christ is a Galilean. You remember this in Luke chapter 23. If not, you can write it down in your notes. Chapter 23, verse 1 through 11. Pilate says, I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. And then he discovers he's a Galilean. He says, oh, thank God. Okay? Send him, send him to Herod because I... He's not within my jurisdiction. Herod at the time controlled the north around the Sea of Galilee to the west, the place of Capernaum, the place of Bethsaida and Chorazin, where Christ, well, actually not Bethsaida, was just outside of His jurisdiction. Regardless, the majority of the places where Christ was doing His work was in the territory of the jurisdiction of Herod. And Luke tells us that Herod was in the city of Jerusalem for the feast. He had made the journey. And so Pilate sends him up to Herod. And then Herod, being Herod, just says this is absolutely ridiculous. He dresses him in royal garments. It says expensive garments. And sends him as a joke back to Pilate. Okay? He ends up then back in the praetorium. Here's a model which might give you a sense of this. Here is... The, uh, the, 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 the place of the praetorium right next to the temple of God. Okay? And it's there that Christ is sent and to be scourged and to be crowned with thorns. Okay, another view of the palace of Antonia and the, uh, and the praetorium. In John chapter 19, turn with me there for a minute. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 1. Once Christ is sent back from Herod to Pilate to the praetorium, 
chapter 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged Him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in purple robe. And they came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing Him out to you that you may know that I find no crime in Him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And Pilate said to them, Take Him yourself and crucify Him, for I, found, I find no crime in Him. The Jews answered Him, We have a law, and by that law He ought to die, because He has made Himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard these words, he was more afraid, and he entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer, and Pilate therefore said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You have no power over me unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Upon this, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Here is your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the, pre and the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he handed them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his cross to the place called the skull, which is known in Hebrew as Golgotha. So we begin what you know or have heard of as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. The way of suffering. St. Ephraim the Syrian says that our Lord subdued His might and they seized Him so that His living death might give life to Adam. He gave His hands to be pierced by the nails in place of that hand that had plucked the fruit. He st was struck on the cheek in the judgment hall in return for that mouth that had devoured in Eden. Because Adam had let slip his foot, they pierced his feet. Our Lord was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in modesty. With gall and vinegar He made sweet that bitter venom that the serpent had poured into mankind. Christ then is taken from the praetorium. And you see up here in the top of your, of your screen, Golgotha, the place of the skull. When we speak of the place of the skull, actually maybe I'll just say this in a moment. Just remember this. Christ is taken to not the place of a skull. He's not taken to the place of, a, of a burial and so forth. He's taken to the place of the skull 
called Golgotha. We're going to come back to that in a moment. The traditional way of the Via Della Rosa, which starts in the Praetorium, the place where Christ was crowned with thorns and then take, take, given His cross, and He begins His way to Golgotha. It begins there in the fortress. And you still can go there today. And there, at the place which is known as the original location of the Praetorium, is a convent of nuns. And they have done excavation under that convent, which for 2,000 years, Christians have recognized as the place of the beginning of the sufferings of Christ. And there, deep underneath that convent, they have discovered stone a stone floor, a road which dates back to the time of Christ. And in that stone floor have discovered carvings made into the floor. You can see more clearly here. A game scratched into the floor, most likely for the throwing of dice or for the throwing of lots as the soldiers wasted their time waiting for the judgment of the criminals. They would have sat here while Christ was being scourged as they laughed and they mocked Him. Right next to that location, literally on the other side of that wall, is the Greek Orthodox prison of Christ. And you'll see very the, the graphic is not good, but Christ there arrested. And here again, just like in Caiaphas' house, they have discovered carved into the stone a dungeon, a place of prison, a holding place, where they believe Christ was kept there in the praetorium while He was scourged, while He was crowned, and while He was waiting for the final judgment. Just outside of that convent, we just read uh, Pilate's words to the Jews. Once they had crowned Him with thorns, He led him, them out to the people which would have been right outside. Imagine the hordes of people gathering around the praetorium at the gate, but not allowed in. This is the original arch. They believe the gate, the archway to the praetorium, to the fortress of Antonia. And this is where Pilate led our Lord out and said, Behold the man. It's called the Ecce Homo arch. The Behold the man arch. That Christ would have stood here before the people, presented to them as their king, when the Jews said, We have no king but Caesar. Again, that way of the cross, that way of suffering, and notice the place of the Dome of the Rock or the Temple Mount and the original fortress where Christ was judged. You come into the city now today, right at that place, and make your way up. Many of you did this with me as we walked up to the Church of the Resurrection. And you see it again here. I showed you the Praetorium and the way to the cross. Just outside the old city walls that you see there. Okay? And still today, the people of the city, the local people of the city, joined by the thousands, the throngs of pilgrims that make their way, annually make the way of the cross along this road where Christ would have walked to His death and final resurrection. And you see them there carrying their cross, taking the cross to themselves. Thousands of people a day make this way. When you go, it is not 
forget a, a peaceful, pious experience. It is very much the way that Christ would have experienced it with the spitting and the yelling. And you make the way with Christ up this road with people pushing, holding the cross of Christ. Along the way, of course, all of the markings of Christ's suffering. The way of the cross. This is probably my favorite spot. Back behind the wall that is currently there, they have cut back the spot where tradition believes Christ stumbled and placed His hand upon the wall. For 2,000 years, pilgrims have made their way along this road and placed their hand until today you can go there and place your hand about three, two to three inches inside that rock because the number of people that have placed their hands have worn that rock away. Again, the traditional way of the cross. I placed this slide there to give you a sense of the narrowness of the roads upon which Christ would have walked. These are not open, expansive roads. Imagine two million people jammed into a city where only a few thousand normally lived. It would have been absolute mayhem. The way upon which Christ was taken to the cross. Here are the markings which you will see along that way in Arabic, in, in, uh, in Hebrew, and in English. The way of the cross. And of course, the markings for each of the stations. And finally, making our way to the church of the resurrection itself. I want to spend our final ten minutes together talking about this final way of the cross in which you can still go and visit today. Probably the most confusing of the experiences you'll ever have in Jerusalem unless you understand what you're seeing. There it is. Of course, the Temple Mount. Christ would have made His way then to the church of the resurrection or to the place of Golgotha. The place of the skull. This is a wonderful uh, rendition because you'll see the original hill. Okay? The original hill. And, it, and indeed, as you make your way today from the... I'll go back a few slides to give you a sense of this. Uh, okay. From you make your way from the praetorium to the place of the Holy Sepulchre, the Church of the Resurrection, you do go uphill. And it's a significant hill you climb. And Christ indeed would have climbed that hill on His way up to His crucifixion. Making our way up then, you see that hill continue. The place called Golgotha. The place of the skull. And the original hill that would have been there. And into that hill, carved out, the original tomb in which Christ was buried. That hill now is cut away. And so when you enter into the church, you enter into one church which contains within it Golgotha or Calvary and also the place of the resurrection. In order to go there, well, this is also nice. The church cut in half so you can see. The entryway. And when you come and walk in, the front doors of the church, you immediately turn to the right and walk up a narrow stair, uh, 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 flight of stairs, a winding flight of stairs, up to the place of the crucifixion. The church itself is otherworldly. A beautiful dome 
over the church. This is that staircase. When you come in these front doors, oopsie, when you come in the front doors here, immediately turning to the right and winding your way up to Calvary, up to the place called Golgotha, and there to behold the place of the crucifixion. One of the most moving experiences of any pilgrim that has ever gone to Jerusalem. It is covered, absolutely covered in gold. The altar there, and under the altar, and under the altar is a disc here that you can place your hand down into and touch the holy stone in which the precious cross was placed. A quotation from St. Ephraim the Syrian. Death trampled our Lord underfoot, but He in turn treated death as a high road for His feet. He submitted to it, enduring it willingly because by this means He would be able to destroy death in spite of itself. Death had its own way when our Lord went out from Jerusalem carrying His cross. But when by a loud cry from the cross He summoned the dead from the underworld, Death was powerless to prevent it. He who was also the carpenter's glorious Son set up His cross above death's all-consuming jaws and led the human race into the dwelling place of life. Since a, since a tree had brought about the downfall of mankind, it was upon a tree that mankind crossed over to the realm of life. Bitter was the branch that had once been grafted upon that ancient tree, but sweet the young shoot that had now been grafted in, the shoot in which we are meant to recognize the Lord whom no cre creature can resist. We give glory to You, Lord, who raised up Your cross to span the jaws of death like a bridge by which souls might pass from the region of the dead to the land of the living. We give glory to You who put on a body of a single mortal man and made it the source of immortality for every other mortal man. You are incontestably alive. Your murderers sowed Your body in the earth as a farmer sowed grain, but it sprang up and yielded an abundant harvest of men raised from the dead. Next to the place of the crucifixion, you will notice two glass cases exposing the rock of Golgotha. And in those rock cases, you will notice there is a major crack which runs on both sides, a fissure in the stone. Take a look with me at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 45. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs also were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This crack which surrounds the entire place of the resurrection drops down in the church underneath the place of the crucifixion down into the bottom floor. And you can look at that crack. It is behind the glass today in Jerusalem. A crack which leads from the place of the crucifixion all the way down that cliff to the place named Golgotha. The place of the skull. It is a crack which runs down from the second or even more like second and a half or third story up down, straight down, into a chapel. And you can see it here. Golgotha. Directly underneath the cross. Golgotha. Why? Golgotha, the, 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 the skull. Whose skull? This is the traditional place, exactly. The place in which Adam was buried. And you say, Deacon Sabatino, how do you know that? <laughs> my dear friends, my dear friends, I will tell you this, that it is believed that Jerusalem was the place of paradise, the original location of the Garden of Eden. And we also know that Adam and Eve were cast out of that garden. And at the gate, at the wall of that garden, was placed a cherub with a flaming sword so that Adam and Eve could no longer enter. I ask you a question. If you, knowing of your sin, knowing what you had done, were thrown out of your father's home, where you were thrown out of paradise from which you were to receive every blessing, would you go wandering far from that place? I don't think so. The tradition is believed that Adam died there in the arms of Eve weeping for what He had done, for in one sin He had lost everything. And there on the edge, on the wall, on the gate of paradise, He died and was buried. And it was there in Jerusalem that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went willingly by intention to the city in which Adam and Eve had been thrown out. And He Himself joined them joined to Him His human nature. And taking that human nature upon Himself, walked out of paradise and as Adam and Eve before Him had done. Taking Himself to the very place in which Adam was buried. So that climbing willingly upon the cross, He may release His life-giving blood literally on the skull of Adam to bring mankind back to life. Coming down now then from Golgotha, looking up high from the place of the crucifixion, 
is the place traditionally reserved as the place where Christ's body was laid and anointed and wrapped for burial. I have with me somewhere, I think it's in the van, Melanie. It is? Great. I have the oil, the oil which they used, not the same oil obviously, but the same mixture of oil that they used to anoint Christ's body with. If you want to smell it so that you know the scent of it, you can come up later and smell that. I brought it with me. It is taken, it is poured upon this rock so that anyone entering the church of the resurrection immediately kneeling down, prostrating themselves and kissing this rock in the church of the resurrection is covered in the oil which covered Christ. You see here now, looking in further into the church of the resurrection, you'll see a little dome here. This is traditionally the place where Mary and the other women stood weeping while Christ was taken down from the cross and brought to the tomb, watching her son be wrapped in the garments of death and taken to his burial place. Coming around that corner then in the church of the resurrection, we will come into the, into the central place of the church. Okay, again here. Right here to the center place underneath that dome which I showed you earlier. That dome which is open in the very center where the light of the world comes shining in and twelve rays representing the twelve apostles come down upon the edicule and the place where Jesus was buried and three days later rose from the dead. There is a beautiful hymn in the Byzantine tradition. It says, Adam was cast out of paradise through eating from the tree, and seated before the gates he wept, lamenting with a pitiful voice and saying, Woe is me! What have I suffered in my misery? I have transgressed one commandment of the Master, and now I am deprived of every blessing." O most holy paradise, planted for my sake and shut because of Eve, pray to Him that made thee and fashioned me, that once more I may take pleasure in thy flowers. Then the Savior said to him, I desire not the loss of the creature which I fashioned, but that he should be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And when he comes to me, I will not cast him out." The Church of the Resurrection on Easter morning. An experience which I dare say is not seen anywhere else in the world. Turn with me to John chapter 20 and we'll conclude here. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I'm going to come back down to verse 11 now. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, the gardener of the garden of paradise, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. St. Ephraim says, Christ's tomb and the garden are symbols of Eden, where Adam died a hidden death. For he had fled and hidden himself among the trees as though he had entered a tomb and been covered over. The living one, once entombed, is now arisen in the garden and raised up that Adam who had fallen in the garden. From the tomb does Christ bring Adam in glory into the marriage feast of the garden of paradise. Dom Prosper Garanger, and I'll conclude with this quotation, says that on that great Easter day, Magdalene, like a morning star announcing the rise of the Son of Justice, who was never more to set. Woman, said Jesus to her, why weepest thou? Thou art not mistaken, he seemed to say. It is indeed the divine gardener speaking to thee, the same that planted Eden in the beginning. But now dry thy tears in this new garden, whose center is an empty tomb, Paradise is restored. The angels no longer close the entrance. Here is the tree of life which has borne fruit these three days past. This fruit which thou, O woman, art eager as of old to seize and taste belongs to thee now by right. For thou art no longer Eve, but Mary. If thou art bidden not to touch it yet, it is because as thou wouldst not herefore to taste the fruit of death thyself alone, thou mayest not now enjoy the fruit of life till thou bring back him who was first lost through thee. Go and get the apostles. You banished us from paradise and you recalled us. You stripped off the fig leaves an unseemly covering, and put upon us costly garments. No longer shall Adam be confounded when you call, nor hide himself, convicted by his conscience, cowering in a thicket of paradise. Nor shall the flaming sword encircle paradise around and make the entrance inaccessible to those who draw near. But all is turned to joy for us who are heirs of sin. Paradise, yes, heaven itself, may be trodden by man. Thank you very much and God bless you. What is the theological implications of of certain Jews or the Jews calling for the death of Christ? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm seriously, this is certainly politically incorrect for me to even discuss the issue, but I'll say this very clearly, that when someone decides who is going to reign in their life, they become a spiritual child of that person, okay? And just as, just as Ruth, who was a Moabite, 
was chosen to become a member of the people of God and an ancestor of Christ. So when those Jews stood up and said that we have no king but Caesar, you have to put this in the context of the prophets. It is during the time, after the Babylonian exile to the time of the coming Christ, when when the the kingdom of David had basically, the, the kingship had been basically just completely underground, it was, for, for the most part, just no, not effective and gone. That the prophet started saying that, uh, that, that in that day, when the Messiah comes, God will be our king. Okay, it's in, it's in the prophet Zechariah, I believe. Let's see if God brings me to the right passage. Um, and he didn't. So, ah, yes, he did. Ever, see that? Never question God. Okay, see that? Verse chapter 13, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. Uh, well, I'm going to go back up to the 14.1. Okay, 14.1. Behold, a day of the Lord is coming. That day of the Lord is the day of the Messiah. On that day, in verse 9, the Lord will become king over all the earth. So for them to say that we have no king but Caesar is to reject their entire patrimony, to reject the idea of the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so let's just leave it at that. To become spiritual children of Caesar, of pagan Rome, rather than being children of God. There's nothing more horrific than to say what they said. Okay? I'll leave it at that. Um, Yes, I just would like to comment on that because I, I read about the miracle of the holy fire and that seems to be what it is. So please you want to comment on that, not on what I was saying. On that, that, yes, that, the yes. beautiful picture the with beautiful the picture. fire. This, yes. Yeah, I didn't say what this is. What's going on here in Jerusalem? Once a year on Pascha, the patriarch, the Greek Orthodox patriarch of Jerusalem, comes to the doors of the edicule to the place of the resurrection. That that edicule is completely uh, gone through, cleaned out. There's nothing in there. Okay, And then he has come, he is divested, his, all his vestments are taken off, and he stands there as a humble man. They frisk him. There is nothing on him, and he goes in and they lock the door. Sometimes three minutes, sometimes a half an hour, sometimes 45 minutes. The people are outside chanting, chanting, we are the Christians, we have been here for 2,000 years. You've never seen anything like it. Get on YouTube and watch this. Riding on each other's shoulders in the church. Okay, singing the, the hymn of the resurrection. And then the patriarch. It is the longest known reoccurring miracle in the history of the church. The patriarch's candles, holding 33 candles in both of his hands, light miraculously. And he comes out of that tomb and the people are there waiting. It's a great honor to be able to take that fire to your home and to your village. And so the young men are in the church to light their fire from the fire of Christ and they run out of the church, and they go out to their towns, and the entire church looks, I mean, beyond this. It's like a fire just coming alive. Smoke coming off the people, and the people chanting, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and bestowing life upon those in the tombs. Chanting over and over and over again. I encourage you to go to YouTube and type in, Holy Fire Jerusalem, and you'll see this. Okay? Okay. Yes, Tom. Okay, she's coming. It better be good, because I think this is the last question I have strength to answer. Okay. 
How much of this is open to the public or needs the special Deacon Sabatino access? <laughs> if you go to Jerusalem, go with me. <laughs> okay, we have a lot of fun. No, look, all of this, everything I'm showing you is open to the public. The biggest problem when people go to Jerusalem is they go without a Bible in their hand. That's number one problem. Okay? And then they go and they see all the holy sites. It's absolute confusion and mayhem. They don't remember what they saw. They don't remember how one thing hooks to the other. My goal when I take people to Jerusalem is they walk away. This is their city. This is their place. Tom, Tom Nally, one of the, the greatest memories I have of being in Jerusalem. Sorry, Tom, it is. Okay, you, it, I was standing in our hotel lobby and Tom Nally came down from his room and he starts to walk out the door. And I said, Tom, where are you going? He says, I'm going people watching in the Church of the Resurrection. He was going to his home and he was going to spend time there with the Lord, praying, seeing the world come to worship Christ. And to me, that was, that was everything I had worked so hard for. So um, just to answer your, your point, is that all of this is open to the public, but Please, when you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, when you go to the Holy Land, go prepared with your Bibles in hands. And um, I would encourage you to go with me next time we go. We'll have a lot of fun together. Yeah. He okay, Henry's the chairman of the board. We'll ask one last question and then we'll be done, okay? It's a comment. Only one man in this room is allowed to comment. And it's the chair, my boss. De Go ahead, Henry. De Deacon Sabatino says it's open to the public, but we went into the tomb and had a prayer service that lasted 45 minutes one morning. Just for us. Yeah. 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 Try doing that as yeah. a member of the public. <laughs> okay. It's true. Well, by the grace of God. Thank you all. I'll be praying for you over the next days. And, uh, and please pray for me also. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.